Regardez, je marche. microphone on? Yes, it is. Excellent. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. Now this morning's allotted passage is verses 9 through 18, but we're going to go start at verse 1 just to get some context of the scripture here. Luke chapter 20. And we'll begin reading at verse 1. Now, it happened on one of those days that as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, that the chief priests and scribes together with the elders confronted him and spoke to him saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? But he answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us. For they they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do all these things. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to to a vine dresser, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to another. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. Then he looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes uh, that very hour sought to lay hands on him. But they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Now, before we delve into the details of this passage, I do, wanna, I do want us to step back a little bit. And I want us to, to kind of meditate on, on where we are 
in the life of Christ. We, we've been we've been going through the life of Christ systematically. Our, our brother Malcolm last week had, had his at his quote unquote triumphal entry. Right, the 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 crowds gathered. They they, they took they took off the outer coats. They took off palms, and he came riding into the Jerusalem on this colt, on this on this donkey, and they cried out, "Hosanna to the Son of David! Hosanna!" And, and it was the and, and it marked the beginning of what they call this week of passion, where Christ would go every day into Jerusalem and would talk to the people. He would perform miracles, and 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 the people were amazed by it. Little did they know that by the end of that week, those very people would say, we, we don't want this man to rule over us, crucify him. So that's where we are in the scope or in the timeline of the life of Christ. The Lord had come triumphantly into Jerusalem and, and, and the Pharisees and the scribes were saying, what is going on? You need to hush these people. And the Lord says, if they don't proclaim the stone's will. And he would go into the temple and he overturned the money changers tables and he would, he would take all the merchants out of the temple, out of the house of God. And the Pharisees were saying, what is he doing? He would heal people. He would, he would make the blind to see there in the temple courtyard. And it says in the, in the account of Mark that little children would come after him and say, Hosanna to the, to the son of David. Hosanna. And the Pharisees would say, you need to shut their mouth. Jesus, you can't let them say that. And he says, out of the mouth of babes and nursing children, they have perfected praise. The children were right. So you begin to see the the, the culmination and the climax of the events that are happening in this week. The Lord comes into his home. He has authority to be in the temple. It is his temple. But those who were stewards of the temple, those who who were the keepers of the temple, they weren't in agreement, were they? They weren't in agreement. And so we're here in this passage. Uh, where in the week it was, there was debate whether it was Tuesday or Wednesday. I, I leave that to the Holy Spirit. But it's in that week. And here we have the main question. He walks that morning. He, he does the same thing during the week. He stays with Lazarus, Martha, and Mary in Bethany, which is about two, two miles from Jerusalem to the east. He stays with them the night gets up in the morning and walks to Jerusalem and spends the day in the temple courtyard talking to the people, doing these things. So he walks there. And here we find him in the morning, in chapter 20. And he's, what what do we find him doing? He says, and it happened on one of those days, that as he taught the people in the temple, now listen, he taught the people in the temple, the gospel. The gospel. Now, what is the gospel? At, at, at its, its basic definition, the gospel is good news. Good news. And here he is, in the crowd, teaching them the good news of God. You think that the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the, the, the elders and the leaders would be, you know, this is actually kind of nice. They weren't looking at, the, at the, the blessing that he was to the crowd. They were looking only to themselves. And they, they approach him. They approach our Lord and, and, and they ask him two questions. They ask him two questions. They ask him the first question, it's by what authority are you doing these things? By what authority are you doing these things? And the second question is, who gave you that authority? You see the, the difference in the question? 
One is asking the nature of your authority. The second is asking the source of the authority. They're asking Jesus this. Now, why are they asking this? Well, because Jesus walks into the temple. He doesn't go to the high priest, doesn't go to the Sanhedrin and say, all these merchants, this is an abomination before the Lord. You need to get these removed. That's what you and I would do. If we see, if we see error, we see, we see people varying from the truth, we go to the top and we say, this is not right. This needs to be changed. Why do we do that? Because we may not have the authority to do something about it, do we? But whose house is it? It's the Lord's. He doesn't ask somebody. He kicks them out. He, 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 he teaches in the temple. Did, 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 what, what, what rabbi does he hail from? What, what, what rabbinical school did he, did he get his degree on? What, what right do you have to teach the people? Who gives you this authority to teach this way? You, you see, the, 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 the scribe, the, the teachers of the day would even wear different hats to signify what school they came from. And here's Jesus, a carpenter. Doesn't hail from any school, doesn't hail behind, but he speaks with authority. He teaches with authority unlike any other man. And so the scribes ask, who gave you that authority? And what is that authority? Very important question. Now, the Lord does something very wonderful and very skillful, I might add. He answers their question with a question. I know that can be frustrating at times. My kids ask me a question, and I ask them a question back, and they say, just, just let me have the answer. Right? No, but when I do it, I do it just, just to be, you know, rebellious and, and kind of poke fun at them. But when the Lord's doing it, the Lord's trying to reveal to them the answer. He's answering their, their question with a question. And he says to them, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? The, the, there was the answer to the question. Now you may say, well, how's that the answer? Well, I think the Pharisees figured it out. We can figure it out too. You see, who was John the Baptist? Well, John the Baptist declared himself, I am not the Christ, he says. He says, I am a voice crying out in the wilderness. As Isaiah prophesied, there's going to be a forerunner to the Messiah. He says, I am that forerunner. I'm making the way of the Lord straight. I, 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 am, I am filling in the potholes. I, I am taking down the high places and getting ready for the Messiah. That's who John the Baptist was. And he preached repentance to the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel came out. We can turn to, to the beginning of the Gospels to see that. It, both in Mark, Luke, uh, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. And the people came and they repented and they were baptized. The people thought it was from heaven, right? But the Pharisees stood off at a distance with their arms crossed and didn't know quite, quite, quite what to make of John. And so here's the question. Was it from heaven or from men? The Pharisees got it right. If we say it's from heaven, well, then the question he would ask us, why didn't you believe? Why didn't you believe what? John's message. What was John's message? 
John's message is, there's someone greater coming. There's someone greater coming that I'm not worthy to just untie his shoes. There's someone greater. I baptize with water. He will baptize with the Spirit of God. There's someone greater coming. You remember that scene there in John? In John chapter 1, the, the crowds would gather there at, at, at the Jordan River. And, the, and, and John hushes the crowd and points Jesus out in the crowd and says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. John's message was absolutely clear, was it not? His clear, message was clear that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. He was the one which the nation was waiting for. So they couldn't say that it was from heaven, could they? And then they said, if we say it's from men, well, what's the big deal in that? And and I find it's, it's a beautiful thing because the Lord uses the question, not just to give them the answer, but it reveals their heart, does it not? It reveals their heart. It reveals their true nature. Because they said, if we say it's from men... The people will stone us. The people will kill us. Because the people were convinced that the baptism of John was from heaven. That John was a prophet of God. Now listen to this. For the the Pharisees and Sadducees, the scribes and the elders of Israel, the religious leaders of that day, their job was to lead the nation spiritually And they were to keep the nation from false teaching at whatever cost. If they were doing their job and John the Baptist was a heretic, regardless of his popularity, they had a duty, a job to open their mouth and denounce the man. Regardless if their life would be the cost of it. And here they are. Afraid of the people. The religious leaders of the day. What kind of discernment is that? What kind of discernment is that? They they weren't they weren't worried about truth. They weren't worried about God's glory. They weren't worried about Jehovah and his people. They were worried about who? Themselves. Themselves. And the Lord says to them, Listen, if you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to answer your question. But then he, it's actually beautiful. When you look at the other accounts in Mark and in, and in Matthew, there's little extra details added uh, when you look at all three accounts together. But after he talks to the, the scribes and the Pharisees, in, in this account of Luke, it says that he then turns to the people. Here he is in the courtyard of the temple, and there's people everywhere mindful that that you're a couple days away from the Passover. The the place is just bustling with people. And he says he turns from them and he turns to the people. And he gives them this parable. Now, I'm going to spend the the remainder of the time talking about this parable that he gives them. Because in the parable, he only not only does he answer the question for the Pharisees, but he reveals the truth of the Pharisees and he predicts the future nation of Israel. The parable is not just a good story. The parable is not just a nice story. The parable has far 
reaching meaning in it. So he turns to the people. He turns to the crowds who are gathered there. And he tells them a parable. Parable of a vine dresser. Of, of a vine dresser. Man owns a, a property. And it says in the other accounts, both in Mark and Matthew, that, that, that he that he inches around the vineyard. He built a wall around them to, for protection. He, he, he got out of the choicest vine and planted it. He, he, built, he dug out vine press. Now, it sounds like this individual did everything right for, for growing these grapes, right? He, 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 he built a tower so that somebody could stand over it and guard it and watch it. See, see if there's some animal eat, eating some of the vine. And it says that this, this owner was, was going to have to go on a trip. And so he hired, he, he hired contractors pretty much. He hired contractors to work the land, to work the vineyard, and, and for a specific price, a certain percentage, we don't know, we didn't give us the details, uh, a, a price would go to the, a certain percentage would go to them, and a certain percentage would go to the owner. Now, now, tenant, uh, tenant farming is, is a common practice. It's not a, it's not a strange thing. It's, it's actually a very common thing. It happens today as well. And so, we read that he found some vine dressers, they came up on an agreement, and he left. He left for a long time, he says. And it says when, when, when harvest time came or vintage time came, right? When, 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 the, when the vines were ripe and the, 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 the grapes were ready to be picked, he sent a servant. Now, remember, there was a contract made, right? There, there, was, there was a contract made between the owner and the vine dressers. All he was doing was getting what he was owed to him. Sent a servant. What, what did they do with the servant? They mistreated the servant. They kicked him, sent him to the curb with empty hands. Now, I, I, we're just going over the basic information of the parable real quick before we get into the interpretation of it, right? Now, I, I want you to put yourself in the place of the children of Israel, uh, those who were gathered in the temple, right? Because they're listening to this parable. They're saying they can relate. Many were probably vineyard owners. Many were probably tenant farmers. They, they, yes, yes, yes. Uh, it all sounds good. It all sounds good. And they didn't do what? They didn't... They, they did what to the servants? Sent them away empty-handed. Well, no, in Jerusalem, not in Israel. That, that, that will never happen in Israel. Well, what is, what, tell me what's going on. And the Lord continues. He sends a second. By now, the people, uh, is he mad? Just go to your authorities, get, get, get a squad of soldiers, go in there and take these guys out. But you see the patience and the grace of this owner. Sends a now, if we would compare the, 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 the same story in the accounts of Matthew, Matthew gives us a little more detail. In fact, Matthew says, he doesn't just send one servant. Matthew sends, he sends servants at a time. And, and in the account of Matthew says that they, they beat one of the servants, they killed one of the servants, and, and, and stoned another one. And then Matthew says that, that he sent more servants the next time around. And they did the same thing. They, they, they beat one. They killed one. They stoned one. And the people are wondering, what is this guy doing? He did this three times. Sent three different ways, at least according to the story. Servants to go collect what he was owed to him, right? It makes perfect sense. Now the question, now this is I want you to think about this. The owner says, what shall I do? 
What shall I do? Now, I guarantee you, everybody in the crowd knew what he should do. Everybody knew what he should do. You know what he should have done. But the owner says this. The owner says this. It says, I will send my beloved son. In the account of Mark, it says, and at last, I will send my beloved son. And at last, I will send my beloved son. Now, just consider the graciousness of this owner. Being, being, being robbed of what is owed to him. Being, being robbed of the servants he would send and mistreat, mistreated servants that he would send. Now he's going to send his son thinking that if they see my son, they will respect him. Of course, we know the story. The parable goes on. They see the son. Now, now, now this is the amazing thing. The vine dressers, they see the son coming, coming along the path, I would assume. They recognized him. They knew who he was. There was no doubt. Because it says that they, they huddled around. They conferred with themselves and said, this is the heir. This is the, the, the rightful owner of this place. Oh, we have an idea. Let's, let's kill him. Let's kill him and hide, hide, cast him out. And, and, and according to, to the Talmud law, if, if you're working a land and the owner passes away, and you work the land for three years, that land becomes yours. So you see that their plan was not necessarily that foolish. They're thinking, we get the land for free, we just have to kill this guy. And it says they took the son, they cast him out, and killed him. Again, we're thinking, the Lord telling this story, and the crowd is listening. And the Lord says to them, what shall the owner do? What shall the owner do? Now, in the account of Matthew, there's a pause there. And here, it just, he just, the Lord continues to talk. But in the account of Matthew, he pauses. What shall the owner do? You know what the crowd says? He should take vengeance on those vine dressers. He should destroy those miserable men, they say. And the vine, the vineyard should be given to another. The people are declaring this. And the Lord here in Luke would reiterate the very same message they gave. He will destroy those vine dressers and give them to another. Now, that's the parable. What is its meaning? Because there on verse verse 16 or the end of verse 16, it says... That when they heard it, they said, certainly not. Now that word heard is a, is a strong word in the Greek of not just, not just I heard it, but I heard it, took it, understood it. And the people's reaction was, certainly not. May it never be. The word certainly not is a, is a very strong negative. It's the equivalent of absolutely not. No way. Let it never be. No, no, never. Is what they were saying. So the question is, what does it mean? 
Because in the account of Matthew, they, they gave the, the, the verdict. And the Lord agreed with their verdict. And when they realized what they were saying, they said, oh, this can't be. So let's look at this parable piece by piece in the time that we have left. So we're going to do some turning. So I hope you have your Bibles with, with you. And, and try to follow along with me. I'll try to be as, uh, as uh, concise as I can. First, everything in the parable signifies is an allegory for something, right? So we're going to look individually what it is. First of all, the vineyard. What, who is the vineyard is the question, right? For that, I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5. Because it says that the people understood when they heard it and understood it, they understood its meaning and they were afraid and they said, certainly not, may it never be. In Isaiah chapter 5, we have a very similar story. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now listen, Isaiah chapter 5. Now let me sing of my well-beloved, a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. We're on the right track, aren't we? My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up, cleared out its stones, and planted in it the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected to bring forth good grapes. But it brought forth wild or sour grapes. Okay, there it is. Very similar parable, very similar imaging. Exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about his beloved, who is the beloved, and he planted a vineyard. And he took care of this vineyard. He did everything he could do to, to make the vineyard successful. And when fruit time came around, what did he get? He got sour grapes. So who is the vineyard? Skip down to verse 7 of chapter 5. And it gives us the answer to the story. It says, For the vineyard is of the Lord of hosts, is the house of Israel. Did you get that? The vineyard is owned by the Lord of hosts, and the vineyard is the house of Israel. Now, this is just one portion. I can I can turn you to Jeremiah and in the Psalms. It, the idea of Israel as a vineyard is common throughout the Old Testament. So I, I want you to begin to understand the parable by seeing it from the Old Testament. The Lord always depicts Israel as His vineyard. And He took care of The owner of the vineyard is who? The Lord of hosts, Jehovah Himself. So now we know two of the aspects of this parable. One, the vineyard speaks of Israel as a whole. Secondly, the God the Father, Jehovah Himself. Who are the vine dressers and who are the servants in this parable? If God the Father in Jehovah is the owner, who is the vine dressers and who is the servants? For that, turn with me just a couple pages over into the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, it, it, it depicts for us 
who these servants are. Jeremiah chapter 7. And we'll begin reading at verse 25. Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 25. Now, this is Jeremiah prophesying against Israel, against Judah. It says, Since the days of your fathers came, I'm sorry, since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have even sent to you all my servants, the prophets. Who's the servants? Prophets. Now, let's continue reading. Daily rising up early and sending them. Now, listen to verse 26. Yet, they did not obey me, speaking of the people, or incline their ear, but stiff-necked in their heart, they did worse than their father. Who are the servants? The prophets of God. The prophets of God. Now, now listen. The prophets of God are all through the Old Testament into the New. And their message was always the same to the people. Repent of your sins and return to the Lord your God. Repent of your sins and return to the Lord your God. Every single prophet. The same message. Repent and return. What did Israel do with the prophets. What did they do to the servants that were sent to them? You know the story. You know what happened. Many were persecuted. I, I think of Amos. Amos was, was, was persecuted and he had to flee for his life. I, Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah the prophet was told that he was sawn in half by a wooden saw. Murdered. Jeremiah. Jeremiah was cast into a pit and then later stoned by his own people. All because he spoke the truth to them. Now turn with me back to the the New Testament, to the book of Matthew, to complete this picture of who the servants are and who are the vine dressers. In Matthew 23, we see the Lord declaring to them that same truth. Uh, Matthew 23, beginning at verse... Hang on a second. 23, verses 29. And I'm not in the right chapter. That's why. 29. Sorry, 23. 29. Now listen. He says to, he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! Because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of, of the righteous. Now listen, this is what the, the, the prophets or, or, or the, the leadership of the day of Jesus Christ did. They, they would look at the, their history, right? And the, the scribes and the Pharisees would see how their own fathers were the ones persecuting the, the prophets of God. Their own fathers were the ones who, who killed Zechariah, the prophet, in front of the very altar, in front of the very temple of God. 
And so they, they would declare themselves to be better than their fathers. And so they would go and they would adorn the tombs of the, the prophets and honor the righteous. And they thought themselves to be greater. And the Lord says, you hypocrites. Verse 30, and it says, If we had lived in the days of our father, we would not have part, been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. So they thought themselves better. They thought themselves to be better than their father. Verse 31, Therefore, your witnesses against yourself that you are the sons of those who murder the prophets. So it's, it, we, we've got it very clear here, right? The servants were the prophets of God. The vine dressers are the Pharisees, Sadducees, elders, religious leaders of the day, the spiritual leaders of Israel. Okay. So, we're winding down to, to, to the last bit here, right? Who's the beloved son? Who's the beloved son? Well, th- th- that, that honestly is a, is, a, is a lot easier to answer, isn't it? After understanding, having the picture from the Old Testament to now, if, if God, the Jehovah, is the owner of the vineyard, who is his beloved son? It is Jesus Christ, is it not? It, it, it almost even harkens back to the previous questions of the Pharisees. Was the baptism of John, was it of heaven or of men? For, for was it not at the baptism of Jesus Christ there in the Jordan River when, when he came up and the, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove that the heavens could be silent no more? And God the Father would declare, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It is Jesus Christ. He's the beloved Son. At the Mount of Transfiguration, there when Peter opens his mouth when he really shouldn't have, God the Father has to step in because His beloved Son can share glory with no other. And He says, this is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Hear Him. Hear Him. And so let's put the the parable together. Because when they understood it, they said, certainly not. They said, may it never be. So here is the Lord. It's almost like, it reminds me of of the prophet Nathan when he went to David to confront him of his sins. He told him the parable, the story of, of the, the owner of, a, of one little sheep and how somebody came and took his little sheep. And what would you do to that man? Oh, he should play, repay fivefold. And Nathan says, you are that man. Very similar here. The people are gathered together. They're listening to the story. Oh, it's about a vineyard. We're all familiar with vineyards. The owner of a vineyard did everything right for, did right by the vineyard, loved the vineyard, gave grace to the vineyard, showed mercy to the vineyard. But those who were contracted, those who were stewards of that vineyard, wanted not what the owner wanted. They wanted it all for themselves. And at various times in the history of Israel, God would send prophets to collect to glean of the harvest, of of, of the souls that were prepared for him. And what did the the nation of Israel do? What did the the leaders of Israel do? They said, absolutely not. And they mistreated the prophets. 
they, 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 they stoned the prophets. They killed the prophets. They treat them shamefully. In the book of Amos, it would say that the prophets would come and they would say, Don't open your mouths. Keep your mouth shut. We don't want to hear it. And God in His ever grace and mercy would continue to plead with His people, would continue to send servants over and over when if it was one of us, we would have been done with them. We would have washed our hands of them and said, we're done. But He sent His prophets time and time and time again. And then when they would not listen to the prophets, when they would not listen to His servants, He said, what shall I do? I will send at last my beloved, my beloved son. And God the Son, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. They will hear Him. The response of the owner is, is they will respect my son. They have to. It's my son. And what do they do? The, the, the wonderful thing, it, it, exactly as the vine dressers did, they saw him, they conferred with one another, they huddled across. Hey, this is the heir. Listen, the Pharisees weren't confused. The Sadducees weren't confused. The, the leaders were not confused. They knew who Jesus was. It wasn't like, oops, we didn't know. They knew who he was. They understood who he was. And they conspired against them anyways. They conspired against them anyways. And so when he poses the question... Let me not skip that detail, but in the story it says that they took the son, they put him outside the vineyard and killed him. What did they do with the Lord Jesus Christ? They took him outside Jerusalem and hung him on a criminal's cross. Very very prophetic, isn't it? Very telling. And the Lord asked the crowd, what shall the owner do? crowd had the right answer and when the Lord reiterates the question reiterates the answer to them and they realize who he was referring to they said may it never may it never be we, we would not betray them we would not betray the son of the vineyard we would not betray our God is what they were saying may it never be that's what they said this day but yet a few days away, they would raise their fist and say, we will not have this man to what? To rule over us. How short-sighted and fickle they were. And the Lord continues. You see, the, the, the parable, the son dies. But it doesn't end there, does it? The Lord is not in the tomb today. But he rose again. And so he continues this, this, this thought flow with another picture. And he says, have you not read? Do you not know of, of the Hallel Psalm? Listen, the Hallel Psalm, they all knew. They probably all knew by memory. And he says, 
It says that this cornerstone, which the builder rejected, has become the chief cornerstone. The one that, 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 that you rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You see, the story does not end with Jesus Christ on the tomb. But he is exalted. He is, he rises again and he sits at the right hand of God and he is the chief, is the chief cornerstone of the church. He is Lord Jesus Christ, is he not? The story doesn't end with his death, but it continues with his resurrection. Now, the chief cornerstone. Our brother Andrew actually had us here in Acts chapter 4 this morning. And it was a very telling portion concerning this very idea. For Peter in his address to the to the religious leaders refers to that very same phrase. In chapter 4 verse 10 it says this. It says, this is Peter talking to the Sanhedrin, to the religious leaders. It says, let it be known to you all. And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you. Now listen, verse 11. This is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders. Where are the builders? The religious leaders of Israel, which has become the chief cornerstone. Has become the chief cornerstone. And what, what, is it, what does Peter continue to say? It says, Nor is there any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men. By which we must be saved. You get that? The reason I bring you there, because it, it, it gives us light to what he says concerning the cornerstone. There, he says, after verse 18, it says, Whoever falls on the stone will be broken, but whomever it falls on, it will grind to powder. It's kind of an ominous saying there, right? If he's become this chief cornerstone, whoever, whoever trips will fall, will fall apart, and whoever it falls on, it will grind to powder. You go, what does that mean? We can get into, into all kinds of, uh, interpretation of that, but I, here, I just want to keep it basic and fundamental to you. Be careful how you engage Jesus Christ. Be careful how you engage Jesus Christ. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Listen, he is the chief corner. There is no other. There is no other. In John, in John chapter 15, I believe, or, or 16, it says that he will send the helper, helper being the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come and convict of sin. What is the sin that he's going to convict of? The sin of unbelief. Unbelief in who? In Jesus Christ. Unbelief in Jesus Christ. 
the, the, the issue is, what are you going to do with this Jesus? Are you going to make him your king? Or are you going to stumble over him and let him be your judge? Which one is it going to be? It's one or the other. There's nowhere in between. Are you going to make him your king? Are you going to make him a stumbling stone? In Peter chapter 1, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter would echo the very same words. To those who believe, those of us who, who are Christian, that stone is precious. It, 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 it's, 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 a, it's a wonder to us, but to those who do not believe, it is a stumbling block and a stone of offense, he says. Quoting from Isaiah, by the way. A stone of offense. So, this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you don't accept Him as, as, as King of your life, if you don't turn to Him for dependence of your sins, for dependence of forgiveness of your sin, excuse me, I would beg you to do that today. Be careful how you engage Jesus Christ. Are you going to make Him your King? Because if you don't, you're going to stumble over Him. He will be your judge. And when He is your judge, it says that stone will fall upon you and grind you to powder. There's not much left. And so, we see in this story the, the mercy and grace of our God. You know, it, 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 it never ceases to amaze me how gracious our Lord is with these people. Just, just before we cl- I'll close with this, but think about this. If you were the Pharisees and scribes and leaders of the day, and you had Jesus as your adversary, and you had decided amongst yourselves that we need to remove him because he's trouble for us. And Jesus would tell you this story. Which tells me two things. One, first and foremost, is that he knows. He knows your heart. He knows your intent. He knows. If I, I mean, listen, if you're going to take somebody out, it's better to do it without them knowing, isn't it? But here he's telling, declaring to the religious leader, listen, I am who I say I am, and I know what you're up to. I wonder how many of us would, 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 just by the sheer fact of knowing that, would repent. Would say, I'm caught. I'm caught. Yet, God in His grace would reveal to them, would reveal to their hearts that He is who He, he is. Who he says He is. And that he knows what they're up to. And yet he still offers himself to them. In Matthew chapter 23, I believe, after this this account of the parable, it says that he looked upon Jerusalem and he wept over them. He knew what they were up to. He knew what they were going to do. He He pled with them. And yet, they would not listen They would not listen. Verse 19 says, The chief priests and the scribes 
that very hour sought to lay hands on him. Were you guys not listening? When, when, when Nathan went to, 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 to David and confronted him about her sins, David said, woe is me. And yet God here confronts them about their sin and they what? They continue in their own rebellious ways. God continues to graciously offer himself to them. He doesn't just stop there. He's crucified. He dies. He rises again. And, and 50 days later, listen, on the day of Pentecost, there is Peter preaching to the same crowd. To the very same people who were saying, we want, we don't want this man to rule over us. Crucify him. To the same people who conspired to have him crucified. And he's telling him to repent. To repent. Our God is loving. Our God is patient. Our God is kind. And he offers himself to all sinners. If you would just repent. Repent. Let us pray. Our Lord and Father. Lord, we thank you that you are. You are long suffering, not willing that any should perish. Lord, your history with mankind. Is one of, of mercy and grace. And men always disappointing and men always rebelling, Lord. And yet, you never tire to offer yourself to us. Lord, we pray, Lord, that that, that, uh, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you in in a personal way, not like the Pharisees. The Pharisees and Sadducees knew, knew it in their head. They understood that you were the Son of God, that you were the Messiah, but they didn't know it in their hearts. All they cared about was their prestige and their life and their their way of life and their creature comforts was far more important than the Son of God walking amongst them. Lord, let us not be short-sighted and simple-minded like these men were, but let us heed and yield to the beloved Son of God. Lord, we thank you for such a great salvation. We thank you for such a redemption that we have in Jesus Christ, the beloved Son. Lord, I ask all these things in your Son's precious name. Amen.